Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. You're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. Hello, everyone. It's me again, Charlie Webb. And as usual, we're going to chat about medical device manufacturing, medical device packaging. And today I have a very special guest with me. It's Dr. Carol Barnum. Now, she's an expert in the UX universe, and we're going to chat a little bit about the user experience, user interface, and even uh, touch down a little bit on the CX, the customer experience. We have so much to cover here. In fact, we're going to talk about this over two episodes, just too much to talk about in one. So we have part one coming up, and on the phone right now, I have Carol with me. Hey, good morning, Carol. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. I'm great. How are you? Well, and you notice I said Carol. I, I had to get your permission to call you Carol because you it's work hard for that PhD. <laughs> so, well, Carol, thanks for joining me. Well, you know, I think before we get started here, maybe the thing to do is to kind of get up to speed on some of the nomenclature. When we talk about UX, the user experience, we talk about user interface, and even I see in your website where we're talking about the CX, the customer experience. Let's start at the top here. Give me sort of the uh, definition of those three terms, starting with the user experience, the UX. Sure. So UX is an umbrella term for what used to be called usability testing. As a matter of fact, the uh, main professional organization for people who do usability testing was originally called UPA, Usability Professionals Association. And uh, a number of years ago, they changed it to UX. PA, User Experience Professionals Association, because user experience covers all the tools in a researcher's toolkit. So it's not just usability testing, which is one very popular tool, most well-understood tool, but it could have tools like an expert review, card sorting to understand the taxonomy of a website, for example, nomenclature to get at the naming conventions and whether they're clear to the user, persona development, customer journey maps. So there's lots and lots of tools in a user experience researcher's toolkit. So that's the UX piece. And then the usability piece can be used generally to say we provide understanding and research to clients to understand their user's experience or the usability of the product or the packaging, which I know we're going to talk about today. And usability testing is the most basic tool that would be used, uh, the most reliable tool that would be used to get into the user's experience because it is one-on-one sessions with the user as he or she does typical tasks and shares their understanding or lack of understanding and their experience of being able to do that. Traditionally, that was done in person, face-to-face, and long before COVID, there were also many tools made available to be able to do it remotely face-to-face like Zoom, for example, or even 
software platforms that allow the sessions to be conducted in unmoderated sessions where the participants would be screened, they would go in, they would record their session, and then you, the client, would get the results of that. So there would not be any direct engagement What right at the moment with the users, but you would be able to very quickly get results by seeing the recorded sessions the same day, the next day, that sort of thing. So it's moved from very, very traditional in-lab usability testing all the way out to platforms like user Zoom and like user testing where you just sign in and fill out a little form and Mm -hmm. pick your participants and go. So that's a quick picture. You and I talked about this a little bit yesterday in medical device packaging, healthcare packaging. There's been so many of these user forums that have been conducted at various trade fairs and there's nothing new about that. I mean, I remember these uh, 20 years ago. Although now we're going to sort of a different place. I mean, we're one of the challenges I think in healthcare is when we're talking about the user experience, we're talking more about the sort of efficaciousness piece of that transfer from the device to the sterile field. And certainly that's the important story that we want to understand. That's the, the intel we're trying to gain when we're doing user experiences, where how is that circulating nurse interplay between that sterile barrier system and then the device that will be delivered out of that sterile barrier system. And so understanding where the possible snags and friction points may be is important to understand. But I think in healthcare, one of the challenges we have is when we talk about sort of the experience, we're we're maybe a level or two down from that. We're talking about user interface, where how do we interface with that device? How do we touch it? What's it feel like? And what's the tactile piece of being able to connect, connect our digits to that opening part where we've seen snags and so forth. But really, when we talk about user experience, that almost goes into the consumer side in my vision, where are we talking about, because I know the language of pleasing delivery has been used, how do we sort of integrate the part of the clinical hard part of getting that device into the Mayo stand, into that surgical suite, and connect it to where, can we say it's a pleasant experience to get that open? Does that fold into that experience as well? Yeah. So that's a really good question. So you're absolutely right. In consumer research regarding usability, you would be highly interested in the user's satisfaction. And so you would want to rate that. And there are well-known and established questionnaires that rate user satisfaction. And, you know, there's a baseline where you know that if it's above or below a certain amount, you're sort of above or below average across a lot of different studies, but not in medical device usability testing for FDA 510K submissions and not for CE mark. So in that case, the FDA has been very clear in its guideline that this is not about usability and satisfaction. This is about safe and effective use. So the focus of these studies is on whether the users, as they engage with the packaging, for example, and the product and open the product and present it to the surgeon in the sterile field, whether they, as a result of doing that, feel that the design of the packaging and their engagement with it provides safe and effective use. And so that's the focus for FDA. They don't really care about usability and Mm -hmm. satisfaction. (laughs) Those things may come up, but that's not the focus of the study. And the focus of the study is always on what are the critical risks identified in the critical risk analysis what is determined to be success and failure as explained in that document, and then how do you assess 
success or failure during a human factors validation study, mm-hmm. which is what FDA requires for submission. And or the ISO 11607, you know, there's more of an emphasis now on the user, the human connection to the device and the packaging, and which is, you know, important and obvious. And as I say, we've been doing these panels for decades and has provided a sort of notchy data, in my opinion. When I've observed these, it's like, well, it's hard to open this this pouch. And it's difficult for us to really glean a lot of value by saying, well, it's it's. I wish the corners had more room. I mean, some of the things, I almost feel like they're inventorying the obvious. That's why I wonder if we're now going a little bit beyond just that, did we meet spec? And I realize that on the clinical side, the FDA's VISTA, that really the goal is to be able to safely deliver that device without damage, maintaining sterility to the point of care. And all those, of course, are valuable. Now, maybe I'm coming from a CEO's optic here, but when I think of the sort of customer experience piece, is there a way for me as um, maybe someone even that's in the marketing side of a medical device to take a look at that clinical part and say that, well, we've met spec in terms of being able to deliver that device into the sterile field effectively. We've also been able to do it where we've enhanced the user experience and ultimately the customer experience because we obviously want to meet spec. But I'm always a little concerned about when we talk about meeting a regulatory requirement, when we have the opportunity to wow a little bit or perform better, let's say, why not take that opportunity to say that? I mean, let's face it, we're at the time of unboxing videos on YouTube. And um, I'm a drummer. I play in a, in a rock band with a bunch of old guys like me. And um, I was watching an unboxing video of, of some of the parts that I wanted to buy. And it's not just me. It's become viral that we sit and watch somebody unfold and magically take apart. I think Apple really was in the forefront of taking this beautiful consumer box and you pull this little easy to open tab and it slides out and it deploys into the next step. And you, it's like these Russian rusting eggs or nesting eggs where it just unfolds and it's a beautiful experience. So why not? So can we bring in that sort of higher level corporate side to say, hey, we need to meet spec on the clinical side, but why not take this opportunity to also see how the customers may be part of that corporate marketing theme to where we know if we're getting something from Apple in a box, even if it's earphones for our iPhones, we know that it's going to unfold and be pretty and the cable is going to be nicely wrapped up. Is there an opportunity for us to exploit that at the same time or maybe fold in all sort of team members, stakeholders really, that are involved in the delivery, ultimate delivery of that medical device to the point of care? Yeah, thank you for reminding me that you did ask me to define CX, which you've just done very well. So uh, customer experience is that piece that is, it includes user experience, but it also is end-to-end. So customer experience is, if I put it into an e-commerce kind of context, it's from when you see the product in the store and then you have to call somebody on the telephone and then it has to be delivered. So it's all the places in the customer journey where there is an opportunity for engagement between the company and the customer. And any one of those points can create pain points that the whole customer experience. So mm-hmm. understanding the customer experience and the journey of the customer is uh, with the usability piece being very important part of that, but not the whole piece is also very important. So directly to your question, 
companies would have to decide that they were willing to invest in a good customer experience beyond the regulatory requirements of safe and effective use, such that the kinds of things that you said, like I've got this study I hope to share with you in which the nurses would say things like, I can't grab onto this because the edges of the tray are not big enough for me to hold it and it feels kind of wobbly and I have to prop it against my stomach Mm. in order to be able to peel it back, those kinds of things. Well, that may be a preference. It may be a desire. It may cause them to feel frustrated or dissatisfied. But does the company care? Does it improve their financial bottom line if they make a wider edge for the circulating nurse to hold on to? If it would pass the regulatory requirements without that? So I would say that that's a very complex question, and part of the complexity of the answer is who is the buyer? Mm-hmm. What does the buyer know about the user experience of the customer, the end user, who might be that circulating nurse? And what, what ability does the circulating nurse have to communicate those kinds of needs, wants, and desires mm-hmm. to the buyer. So, right. well, so I say it's complex. You know, I think from my point of view, and because I oversee every granular piece of my organization, I never miss what I call the opportunity to delight. And even though medical devices are these hard things that we need, and they're almost a somber reality of life, if you're going in for an aptidectomy, how do you delight, right? But with the users that are connecting to that procedure tray, if it's easier, more, I don't know if fulfilling is the right word, but if it's easier to connect with that procedure tray than the competition, just all of it sort of aggregates into a better experience, I think. And and we do have competition with medical devices, not just the efficaciousness of the device. It goes beyond that. And I do think that there's an opportunity to delight in every piece, all the way from how the, uh, the device is made, how it feels in the surgeon's hand, how it's deployed from the sterile barrier system, the containment system, a tray. We see a lot of companies that are making these beautiful sort of chipboard insert cards that go into surgical trays and they open up easier. You and I had a conversation a little bit yesterday about how EMTs and paramedics and ambulances are are grabbing uh, open a flexible pouch with their teeth and kind of opening it up like they're deploying a grenade and you know throwing it into the field. So we do need to understand how those are, are being used, but perhaps there's a better way for that paramedic to connect with that device where they may be encouraged uh, not to have behavior that could risk the sterility of the medical device. And of course, that's the name of the game. So sometimes in my point of view, it almost seems like when we have a better user experience, it can also sort of bleed into this other gray area of being able to provide some delight. So I think from my point of view that the opportunity to delight through this process while still maintaining spec, but going beyond spec. Again, you know, we're companies with competition and every little piece matters. I mean, we're looking at uh, marketing uh, metrics that talk about what color your pouch is and how it's read by the, the user. So certainly when we have to aggregate all of these different human functions, considerations, I remember one time in, when I was uh, at the University of Redlands, we were working on some packaging uh, discussion about delivering products and how foods uh, should never have blue labels because it was found in various groups to be 
unappetizing for consumers. So when we're talking about colors, the feel, the look, all of those sort of things, I think being able to fold in at least at one point as we're trying to meet spec by opening up that pouch and make sure that the caregivers are able to, or users rather, are able to open up that pouch and have a good experience. Why not fold in a little bit more of the delight piece if there's an opportunity to do so? Yeah, I completely agree, and especially if it could be supported by improving the ability to use the product safely. So if you could tie it back to that while also addressing satisfying user experience, that would be the ideal goal. Well, tell me how the process works. So you obviously, uh, your company is a UX firm, is engaged to uh, perform a study And I'm very nascent to this process. I watched your videos on your website yesterday and I was watching one of the five uh, users um, Mm -hmm. for usability, you know, what the population of users, a little bit about how those moderators or whoever proctors these um, studies, how those are selected. Can you give us kind of a bird's eye view of what the process looks like from the beginning of when you're sort of commissioned to start a usability study? Great. Sure. So... I can keep it focused on medical because that's the most interest of your audience. So the way any study starts, but the way medical study starts in particular, is that we, once we've secured the contract with the medical device manufacturer, we have a kickoff meeting, which is a planning meeting. We've been given a lot of documents in advance, like the risk analysis and um, any prior work and so forth. But we start from scratch and we say, who are your user groups? Who are your target users? How many different user groups do you have? Because if you're doing an FDA submission, it requires a minimum of 15 participants in each user group. So if you've got doctors who are engaging with the product, if you've got nurses in various roles who support the product, if there is a cleaning aspect to it or a sterilization aspect for reuse, all of those would represent separate user groups and each one of them would go through a usability testing session of however long and there have to be a minimum of 15 in each of those. So those studies can get pretty expensive pretty Mm. quickly um, because now you're talking about 45 people, which is not unusual although it can be smaller. So one particular example I do want to talk about because I've been working with one manufacturer for the past year conducting numerous studies on packaging, and I know that will be of most interest. So you start by planning. So for packaging, it's one user group, 15 nurses who are circulating nurses or scrub nurses or wear both hats Mm -hmm. uh, in the operating room and who are screened. So what you do in the planning meeting is you create the criteria for your screener, what requirements are need to be checked for that person to be invited into the study and what things would disqualify them. And it could be everything from how much experience they have with your type of product from other manufacturers. It could be how many years of experience they have. It could be what types of procedures they support in various contexts. And so you get a variety of people who then from the screener are able to be screened by a recruiting company. So we partner then with the recruiting company. My company, UX Firm, is sort of the soup to nuts. We handle everything, but we obtain the facility for the testing. We obtain the recruiting company and work with them and oversee how they're recruiting and making sure that it's matching. And so we plan the whole study in one or more planning meetings in which we develop what the tasks are to test, what the critical risks are 
on their severity rating scale, and those have to be tested, what additional tasks are needed to get to those critical risk tasks? Are there any knowledge tasks which are covered in the critical risk analysis but which wouldn't be seen in a hands-on use of the product? So you ask things like, how would you store this product? for example, or how would you dispose of this product if these are things that need to be known because they fall into the category of critical risks, then you ask these after they've done the hands-on tasks and they need to refer to the IFU, the instructions for use, in order to be able to show you where in the IFU this information is included and whether that information is clear to them or confusing. And then you're marking everything as you're actually going through the study as a pass-fail or something along those lines. So you plan the study. You then work with the recruiting company. The first thing they need to do is start recruiting the participants because that usually takes several weeks. And so you engage the facility and the recruiting company. You set the dates for testing. One piece that you have to cover in the planning process is whether there's going to be any training requirement. And these usability tests are all simulated use. So there is no risk to anyone in the study, and you have to identify what are the known risks in actually participating in the study, and these should be very low. So you have to simulate either with a mannequin or a mock patient or an apparatus that shows how the device would actually be inserted into the the part of the body where it would be used. Or in cases with packaging, you just simulate the operating room very, very simply where you mark off, we do this with blue tape, the prep area, which is the non-sterile field, and then the sterile field. And we have a member of my team who is the doctor who receives the device into the sterile field. And then There are some questions that are asked of the participants. So if there's a training component required of the nurses, let's say, in order to be able to do this, which in many cases there is not because there's nothing unique about opening your package that would require separate training. But in many, many studies, there is a training component. So FDA requires that the training simulate what training would be like in real life And then they require a decay period, which means a break between the training and when the person would actually begin doing the procedure. And the general rule of thumb is it has to have a minimum one-hour decay period. Well, this makes it, again, expensive if there's a training component because let's say you've got a nurse and she needs to have training and we do an in-service training where let's say three or four nurses are trained at the same time in the morning, let's say, for an hour, and then you have to have a minimum of a one-hour break, and then you start scheduling them in their 30-minute sessions or hour-long sessions or hour-and-a-half-long sessions, whatever it might be, after that. So then their total time is two-and-a-half hours or whatever it might be. So on an hourly basis, the stipend or the incentive that you need to pay these people can be significant if Mm. they're skilled and hard to get, for example. So that's all part of the planning process. And then you you go into the testing process. And then after, and then there's a template in which you log all the findings. And you have a note taker who's rapidly typing everything to make sure that you capture everything that happened, including quotes, comments from the users about their experience, answers to questions about whether they experienced any difficulties, any close calls, Mm. if they felt they made any mistakes. These are all sort of standard questions. 
And then you ask them, do they feel that this product is safe to use as is, which is the critical question. And you want them all to be able to say yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they say no, you want to understand what it would take for them to be able to say yes if something were changed. And then that is all analyzed, the data is analyzed and written into a report, very big, extensive report that is part of the submission package for 510K to FDA. And so that, if you had one user group, 15 sessions of 30 minutes to an hour, start to finish from the planning meetings to the end, including the recruiting and the testing and the analysis and the reporting, generally runs eight to 10 weeks. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. But that's, you know, it's a long process and the 510K process. You know, one of the questions I yeah. had as you were talking, how do you prevent, this is the cynic in me, so forgive me, but how do you prevent sort of a paid bias where you have right. um, people working and they're like, well, you know, we want to give them favorable because they just bought me a um, week in the Bahamas or whatever. So how do you sort of work against that potential paid bias? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, the moderator, that's the role I always take in my two-person teams. Uh, The moderator prepares a script. That's another part of the test protocol. All of this goes to FDA. And the very first thing the moderator says is, I am not the developer of this product. So there is nothing that you can say that would hurt my feelings. That's the first thing. The second thing, and, and FDA does not allow companies who do their own testing for submissions. So it has to be a third-party, unbiased company like UX Firm or many others. Mm -hmm. Second thing is you make sure that you get the right participants by building into your screener everything that you feel is relevant to be able to screen out somebody who may want to participate in the study for the money, but they're not really qualified. So you want to make sure, and sometimes you ask them to bring their credentials so if it's an RN or something like that, you're going to be asked to present your credentials when you when you come in for your session. So there are mm. lots of ways to sort of validate or verify that the people that you're getting are the right people. Third, you screen out anybody. I mean, these are typical screen out questions that work for a marketing company, for a medical device company that have participated in the study, a prior study within the last six months. So all kinds of criteria that you can set up to make sure that you're not getting people who are just regular testers who also may have a relationship to companies that would cause them to be biased. Well, Dr. Barnum, we're starting to run out of time for today and we have so much to cover. I don't want to cut this short. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick it up on the next episode of Spot Radio. So listeners, please listen to the next episode. We're going to dive in a little bit deeper so you can get even more clarity on this interesting process of the human connection to your device and packaging. Well, medical device manufacturers and medical device packaging experts, thank you so much for tuning in to Spot Radio today. Look forward to having you back on the next episode where we continue this conversation. This is Charlie Webb. Talk to you soon. This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasper. Director of Media Service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.